Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. You frequently hear in the news, our healthcare system is broken. Nonsense. We have first-rate doctors, nurses, and world-renowned hospitals. What's broken, or pardon my language, what sucks, in my opinion, is our health insurance system. The stories we read about or hear in the news, cancer patients going broke from their care, And of course, what we all experience firsthand in our own denials of procedures or non-coverage, it's appalling. And this leaves millions of Americans in either poorer health or for sure a poorer bank account. The leading cause of bankruptcy in this country is from medical bills. We shouldn't have to rely on a GoFundMe page to pay for our medical care. So enough of my anger. I guess you could tell I'm really on edge about this. Today's guest, Dr. Brad Spellberg, is one of the best people I could think of to get some solutions to this problem. Dr. Spellberg is the chief medical officer at Los Angeles County Hospital, I believe one of the largest public hospitals in the country, and he's an associate dean of clinical affairs at the Keck School of Medicine at USC. He is also an internationally respected infectious disease specialist. He's the author of two books, The Rising Plague and Broken, Bankrupt, and Dying. The latter depicts what's wrong with our healthcare system and offers a road to the solution. So it's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Brad Spellberg to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I look forward to this. Okay. So Dr. Spellberg, let me ask you something. You are by training. I also also had a lot of infectious disease training, but that's your specialty. And in your book, you give numerous examples of denial of access and coverage of healthcare. But I'm curious, because I always like to start with a little bit of a background thing that got you interested in this, instead of just focusing on your infectious diseases cases, Do you have a personal story that really kind of just tipped the boat or angered you enough to get involved and speak up about this? All of the stories that I tell in the book are personal stories. These are all patients that I've directly taken care of or have become aware of through peripheral contacts. And it is in the role as CMO of this giant public hospital where you just see things every day that are maddening and infuriating, the kind of stuff you're talking about. I've watched families voluntarily relinquish private insurance to sign up for Medicaid because they could not get their cancer taken care of. They kept getting denied in their in-network private system. And they wanted to follow with us, but we can't take private insurance. So they switched to Medicaid. That tells you when somebody voluntarily gives a private insurance set up for Medicaid, you got a problem. Absolutely. Yeah, that alone. I did a little of a preview to our podcast. And I when I mentioned it, it was my own even personal story. Uh, I've had a few ankle surgeries. I was a tennis player and keep on causing a lot of problems to my ankles, even though I love the sport. And the most recent one I had a few years ago, it was just maddening. I got denial for an MRI. So I had to just pay for out of pocket. I needed the, the surgeon needed the MRI to see what, you know, what he was going to do before he operated on me. And uh-huh. then what was even more appalling, I'll never forget this, 
was that several months after, you know, the operation, he was in the OR for three hours taking care of, you know, a torn tendon. I see the explanation of benefits and what they paid. Now, he was in there for three hours. I mean, he's a world-class orthopedic surgeon and he had billed about $10,000, which really between, you know, you think about all his time in the OR and everything, and they paid like $1,200. So when I got the explanation of benefits, I called up his office and I said, Ooh, I think there must be, it has to be a mistake. There must've been something that maybe you didn't put a code in right or whatever. And they said, well, maybe Dr. Mitchell, but let's check. But we have, have been having problems. And sure enough, my coverage, which is a private insurance that I have out-of-network care for, deemed reasonable and customary, along with the 60% discount that they do, to pay that amount. And I was responsible for the rest. And I, again, my surgeon deserved it. I thank God he did a great job. And it was just infuriating because a lot of us, or many of us, pay for our also our insurance because we want to have those options to go to the doctor that we want to. So it's maddening. So it really leads me to my next big question with you. You know, when I started in private practice in 1991, I remember when I thought insurance was what I would call, quote, normal. You as a provider put in a claim. You were typically reimbursed 80% of reasonable customary fees, which were reasonable and customary, I believe, at that time. So what happened to the system? Why did it change? Was it due to technology with MRIs? Was it overutilization? Was it just companies trying to figure out more profits? What happened to that normal insurance? So the, actually, I, I do want to clarify, the yeah. insurance is only one of our problems. Well, no, I know that. We, right, we'll get to a lot of them. But uh, the system has been broken for far longer than 1991. Okay. If you look at, if you want to sort of use benchmarks and say, well, how do we compare to how other countries do? The United States began to deviate in performance, and we can talk about what the measures are for that, sometime in the 1960s and 70s. That's, that's, when, that's when Medicare originated, though, really, right? Indeed, although that was not the that cause. Right. People considered that to be a great you know, breakthrough. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. But I think that's just because it took, you know, our healthcare system really originated in the aftermath of World War II. And it took 15 to 20 years for the chaos. It was never planned. Our healthcare system is an accident. The reason we have employer-sponsored healthcare access is because two laws passed in 1942, the Stabilization Act and then the Revenue Act, both of which were intended to help the United States prosecute World War II, raise the funds to fight World War II, and prevent post-war inflation. Those laws prevented companies from giving pay raises during a very tight labor market. So in World War II, all the adult males were going to military and you couldn't raise pay to attract workers to your company, but they didn't fix benefit packages. And the Revenue Act actually created a tax write-off for benefit packages. People were not getting health insurance to their employers until the 1940s because of those two laws. After World War II ended, there was an explosion of healthcare packages, healthcare insurance packages, because of those two laws. That is why our healthcare system is the way it is. It has nothing to do with delivering healthcare. And the result has been random chaos, just organic explosion of competitive insurance packages, which are not rationally designed in a system that was never rationally designed. And I think it took 15 to 20 years of chaos 
for that performance to start to deviate more expensive, lower lifespan than our peer nations. Let me ask you a question, because going back to World War II, because obviously, you know, when did the VA hospital system come into play? I'm just thinking about that now, because, you know, again, like we'll get to COVID and all these things. When crises occur, obviously the government, I mean, they are the backstop. They're supposed to be in there to try to support whatever change has to be done. You can't rely on businesses to do that. And think about yet all of these vets coming back from the war, injured, you know, other issues. And again, probably the easier thing, there wasn't as much advanced technology, obviously, as we have today, but still care for the wounded, you know, was that set up right after World War II or was that later on? I'm just no, it was curious. In the aftermath. I don't remember the exact year. Yeah. In the aftermath. Because they had to take care of these people. So something had to be done. And again, it's sort of going back to what we're talking about now. I mean, again, where well, we could jump around a little bit, but it's almost like, again, with COVID also, it's going to be affecting so many people acutely. I mean, I just saw today in the newspaper that the bills for a hospital stay for COVID are around $40,000. And they're saying that even with coverage, if somebody's lucky enough to have coverage, which that's another whole issue now we'll, we'll talk about later on too, most people could still be responsible for about $3,800, which is a lot of money. Yeah, well, yeah. the Kaiser Family Foundation in 2019 surveyed 2,000 employers, public mm-hmm. and private employers, about their benefits packages. And so this is now two years ago. The average annual premium so this is just the money you pay up front to buy the insurance was more than $20,000 per year for coverage of family, family yeah. coverage. Yeah. And of that, one third is taken out of the paycheck of the employee and two thirds is covered by the employer. So you're getting a hit to both the business and the worker. And with that $20,000 premium, the average deductible Sixteen hundred bucks. Yeah, I know. I have a six thousand dollar deductible. My health insurance cost me twenty five thousand dollars, and I pay for a few of my employees. But so that's my question. I'm going back to because where is that coming from? It's from the insurance companies doing their math and their stuff, saying, you know what, Dean Mitchell's family needs to pay twenty five thousand dollars because otherwise we'll lose money. I mean, what? I'm just trying to understand, really. I mean, fortunately, I don't have an ankle surgery every <laughs> every year, and uh, we try to stay healthy. I don't smoke, you know, and all that kind of stuff, but. Why have the premium shot up like out of control? This is the bottom line. Yeah. There is no layer of cost control in our healthcare system. There is no one in charge of cost control. There is no one with a motivation to achieve cost control. Why should the insurance companies care about cost control? If their costs go up, they just pass it along to the payers, us, right? Why should the physicians care about cost control? If the costs go up, their salaries go up. The, The hospital, similarly, there is no... There is no point in our healthcare system other than the federal government not wanting Medicare budget to go up. There is no one that's in charge of saying, you know, you're spending too much damn money. This is why the first line of my book, as an attention grabber, it's a very sincerely held belief. The first line of my book is that the U.S. healthcare system is the greatest ripoff perpetrated on the American people in the last century. We get stuck with the bill because no one else cares that we're getting ripped off. Well, so let me ask you this, too, because you and I both can see it from both sides. When I say that, meaning we are healthcare professionals, 
We take care of patients. We know what our services, you know, pay our staff, pay overhead. You run a hospital. I run a private practice in New York. And then on the other hand, you see what the payers pay. I mean, when I talked to some people, they said, if we had to, even hospitals, if we had to exist on what Medicare or Medicaid pay, we'd go broke. So they have to charge super extra pre, you know, fees to the private insurance. So I don't see it. Like what I'm trying to see is like when I see now when people, you know, let's just say even, for example, for an MRI, they reimburse $300. It's not nothing, but, you know, you know what the machines, the tech, who has to do it, the radiology has to read it. What's the answer? I mean, why can't, why can't healthcare figure this out? Other businesses figure out a way to make transparency, but also to make it so, you know, that it's affordable and it makes sense. Again, there's no, we don't have a healthcare system. Mm. We have a random assortment of chaos. Okay. In other countries where they have healthcare systems, they actually do. They set prices. They set efficiency standards. Mm-hmm. And in the United States, you say, oh, well, those are quotas. You're doing a... Listen, that's a healthcare system. Right. In the book, we're all complicit in this, by the way. I'm sorry. All of us. Well, no, you're right. You're right. Because, you know, what? I guess the example was years ago, too, like <laughs> it was saying that there were more MRI machines in New York City than there were in all of England. So you have access to the technology. And yes, I was thinking about this before we even spoke today. I was like, you know, you could have a patient who's complaining of headaches. And let's just say after a while, they wear the doctor down and they say, OK, we better do the MRI, make sure there's no aneurysm. OK, but that same person doesn't need two, three more MRIs. That's a waste of services and money. There's no question about that. Again, you would think with technology today, I don't know, again, I don't know what goes on behind the insurance curtain, but it's like you would think algorithms, really well-prepared things could somehow be utilized to- well, why, why should the insurance companies be on the hook for that? That if their costs go up, they just pass it along to us. Well, yeah. Okay, so that's what's strangling us, but- No one is responsible. So I tell the story mm. in the book. This was not a patient I took care of. This was a patient I became aware of due to a medical legal issue mm-hmm. that I was asked about. Okay. This is a patient at another hospital in California that I do not practice at and I've never practiced at. But she was in town for a business meeting. She was out of state. She flew into town for a conference. She's in her hotel. She goes to sleep. She wakes up the next morning. She's got a big staff abscess on her face that just popped up overnight. Wow. She goes to a private hospital that is very well-renowned, highly respected, she has normal vital signs and she has a normal white count. They get a plastic surgeon to incise and drain the abscess. They admit her to the hospital. She's on IV antibiotics for three days. The itemized bill that that hospital generated for her care had more than 60 individual line items on it, wow. including, for example, $500 per day to pay for vancomycin, which is a $5 per day generic not including $2,000 for the act of infusing the vancomycin each time it was infused. The result of which was that her bill was more than 50,000 bucks and her excellent private insurance left her on the hook for 5,000 of that cost. Now, if she was my patient in my public hospital where we don't do line item billing and we're not financially incentivized to do everything to people to make money, she would have had an ER physician in size and drain her abscess in the ER. She would have been sent home with oral bactrim, and her total bill would have been less than a thousand bucks, most of which would have been covered mm-hmm. by Medicaid. Okay. So you're saying, I, I guess, you're taking from the view it's the hospitals that 
I guess, to whatever, continue to operate and and possibly all of us. Yeah, well, think. Well, no, but no, but Dr. Spellberg, you can't blame the patient. They come in, you know, it's even like this whole thing too, where they say about patients, you should be checking out the prices, this, that too. You know, when you're right, because when you're sick, you're like, take care of me. You're not negotiating with the ER doctor. Look, I don't want, I don't know. Let me clarify. No, when I say all of us, the only way in which patients are complicit is that they don't demand healthcare reform, right? Mm. We haven't said as voters, enough of being ripped off to the tune of a trillion dollars per year. That's how much excess we pay, at least a trillion dollars per year of our tax dollars just being set fire to every year. No, no, what I mean is, typically speaking, all the components of the healthcare system, the doctors, the nurses, the hospitals, the insurance company, the government, they all do this. When you ask what's wrong, they'll point at the (laughs) end. All of us need to own this. The doctors, the nurses, the hospitals, the insurance company, the government. All of us need to own that we've all been complicit in ratcheting up these costs because this is how people make money. And in our country, the healthcare system is about making money. Yes, I've heard that. And it's sad when you think about it. But okay, so you're at a public hospital. Unfortunately, they are a dwindling breed themselves because of a lot of financial issues. And, and they're at the beck and call of the government coming up. And because again, you know, I know in New York, a lot of the public hospitals are really hurting. They they run out of equipment. It really depends on if they have good Congress people or you know, people willing to speak up. And that's a scary thing to a lot of the average American. They're like, I don't want to go to a hospital and find out, oh, they didn't have enough money. They don't have a ventilator. They don't have the, you know, the right surgical equipment. We want to go to a, a private hospital. But from your view, running a public hospital, and you know what it takes to pay for nurses. I mean, you, ha- you need your staff. You need the doctors. You need the equipment. Who knows? Is there someone like you that knows to say, you know what? I mean, even a private hospital should be able to get away with a patient like that for $1,000. Or they can't because they're not going to be able to really, quote, survive. That's that's what I'm asking you. So there was a fascinating story at Vox.com about a year and a half ago that was covering the Maryland experiment where all acute care hospitals in the state of Maryland have been changed by CMS into globally budgeted hospitals. A globally budgeted hospital is a hospital at which you get a fixed budget at the beginning of the year. And that's your... That's what you're going to get paid. You know, upfront, this is my budget. Mm. I have to take care of patients for this amount of money rather than a fee-for-service model. The more things I do, the more billing I get. Mm -hmm. They interviewed the CEO of one of these hospitals, and he was very frank. He said in the interview, before global budgeting, when I had empty beds, I got really nervous. I have fixed costs and I have no revenue coming in to offset those costs. I wanted people to get sick so they could be in my beds (laughs) so I could generate billing to cover my costs. After global budgeting, he's like, why are there so many sick people? My God, I have fixed revenue, right? I'm getting an upfront amount of revenue. Every single patient admitted to my hospital is eating into that revenue. I want to figure out how to push healthcare out into the population to keep people from getting sick in the first place. Wait, wait, now, well, why did he have the empty beds and now they were full just because he had a global payment? No, it's it's not that a change in beds being full, it's a change in perspective. Oh, okay, okay. Right, it's, all right, before when you had 10 empty beds, you're like, why do I have 10 no, empty beds? No, I know, beds? right, now, right. Well, he couldn't. Now it's like, I only have 10 empty beds? Right. I should have 100. So which, if you're the customer in this business relationship, i.e. the patient, yeah. 
which healthcare model makes more sense to you? The one where we want you to get sick so we can do right. surgery on you to make money? Right. Or the one where we want you to stay healthy so you don't need the healthcare in the first place? Right. But the scary thing, though, too, is again, just to be able to cite contrarian on this, is that like what happens sometimes in those situations too, where they have a fixed budget, then they start looking to say, well, where can we cut things? Do we need so much equipment? I'm not, I'm not saying whether that's good or bad, but a lot of times it could be bad. Maybe we don't need so much equipment. You know, and obviously COVID, we saw that was a whole caught us with our pants down. You know, maybe uh, some of these doctors and nurses making a little bit too much money. Do you know what I'm saying? And then also, as you know, when it comes with the government, every year they're saying, whoa, we're in trouble here. Let's lower the fees that we're paying. I mean, I'm, I'm just doing, I mean, you know better than I do because you're involved in those discussions. Let me but. just tell you, I've heard these tropes over and over and over. Yeah. You know, when people say to me, other countries' healthcare systems suck because they ration. Mm. That's a healthcare system. Right. Okay. Rationing stupid, unneeded care is good healthcare. Right. That's true. What we don't want to do is ration needed care. Right. 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 The presumption that these countries are acting against the interest of patients is belied by the fact that, objectively speaking, people live longer in those countries. They have lower rates of death amenable to healthcare in those countries, and they spend much less money to achieve those results in those countries. You can't tell me another system isn't going to work when people are already doing it. So let's let's talk about this system, because I'm going to mention something that I really want to hear your idea, because you mentioned in the book about the single payer system. Like, for example, HMOs have seen whatever you want to call them have seemed to not work. I mean, I think doctors have gotten disgusted with it. I think for a long time, honestly, because I get a lot of the medical journals and even the medical economics, you know, where they're always all, there's all these things on doctors, like, you know, you're in charge of this group of patients. If their hemoglobin A1C is not good, if their hypertension is not controlled, the doctor and the hospital system are responsible. I think that's BS. You know, I think patients have to be responsible for their health care. So what is it about, if I'm right, what you say in your book, you think the single payer system, which I could agree with you, may be the way to go. How can that be rolled out so it's palatable for for most Americans? I mean, I think it would be great so they're not having to tie their health insurance to their job, which in today's world is, you know, obviously another whole chaotic thing. So, well, you know, you're in charge. How would you design it a little bit? Well, let me let me clarify two things. One is the capitation model that you're talking about, where you're responsible for a population. Yeah. If you don't perform well for that population, even if the patient doesn't choose to come to you, then there's a financial hit. I actually think is a very effective model. That's the model we work on in the LA County health system. That doesn't mean you can't build behavioral economic incentives into the cost of the premium coverage for the patient and make both parties responsible. So for example, if you smoke, your premium is going to go up. If you don't go get your diabetes checked, your premium. So part of the point that I make in the book is this idea that we hear, well, I don't want to have national insurance because I don't want to have to pay for someone else's health care. If you think you as a taxpayer are not paying the cost of the uninsured in this country, you're dreaming. Mm. Mm. All of that cost is going directly to the taxpayers, and it's really expensive because they don't get preventative care. So they come in with disastrous emergencies that are very expensive. You'd pay one-tenth that amount of money to keep them healthy. So people don't understand the funds flow in our system. We're already covering the costs there for the uninsured. Now, to your point, really quickly. Yeah, sure. I think personally... As an individual, 
Single payer is the way to go. Single payer systems throughout the world are the most cost effective mm-hmm. by far. But I also recognize that half the country violently disagrees with that idea. And the bottom line is you don't get stuff done when half the country violently disagrees with it. So I actually, to cut to the chase, think the real model for us as a country, because of the unique culture in America, is Australia and New Zealand. Mm. Like, a, like a hybrid a hybrid. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think the tide is really changing about the single payer system. And I think Bernie Sanders, I don't know, I don't agree with his politics and a lot of things, but the idea that, you know, I mean, people tend to like Medicare. I talk to my parents, everybody, they, they don't get denied all these things. It's that too. You know, a lot of hospitals, doctors have to take it because it's the biggest game in town. If it obviously could be improved in obviously a lot of ways so that, again, hospitals are not running out of funds to do and be supplied for what they need. This is an important point that you're making. The reason Medicare keeps its cost the way it does is because healthcare is so expensive because private insurance keeps ratcheting up costs. So what would happen in a single payer system is not that everyone would get paid current Medicare rates. It's that you would no longer get ripped off and have all of this waste in our system going to massive insurance company overhead, Mm. fraud, and profit. Mm. And those costs would come down so that what you would end up with a single-payer system that pays, I'll make up a number, this is not the Mm. actual reality, but 20% over what Medicare currently pays. Mm -hmm. In other countries that are single-payer, Doctors that are in cognitive specialties make more relative to the average wage in that country than in the United States. In the United States, cognitive specialties make, I mean, we're way above the mean income for the country, but compared to a spine surgeon or a Mohs dermatology surgeon, no. But in those single pair countries, it's not that doctors make less money. Mm-hmm. It's that the skew is much narrower. I get it. Right. That which makes sense. Let me ask you those two, but also again on the insurance thing. Why does it seem though like the insurance companies, it's become a monopoly? When I started in practice, there were 20, 25 insurance companies that were paying me. Now there's like two or three. Is it because, I mean, obviously, if it's such a great business, why wouldn't more companies be in there competing? It seems like United Healthcare is super dominant, the Blue Crosses. I mean, there's just not competition even. I think there is an answer. Do you know what the average profit margin of a insurance company is in the United States? I would guess, but I, they make it sound like it's very little, like they make like yeah. 10 cents on the dollar or something. It is little. It's something like their profit margin is something like 2 to 3%. So why does- Pharma is yeah. 10 to 20%. Yes, Biotech is 20 to 40%. Yeah. So here's the thing. I think- so. Insurance companies actually aren't making a ton of profit. What they are doing is bringing in an ungodly amount of revenue, trillions of dollars of revenue, but their costs are astronomical because our healthcare costs are astronomical. So I think what has happened is cost pressures have caused consolidation. Mm. For economies of scale, smaller companies have joined together to try to reduce their costs Mm -hmm. to increase their profit margins. This is the point. There is no one in charge of our costs and our costs keep spiraling. Mm. So insurance company premiums keep going up and that just causes consolidation in the insurance company industry. I want to talk about solutions also to the healthcare system. And I I know you mentioned your book. I had a couple of things I want to throw out to you. And I don't know if you mentioned this. 
you know, because you talk about healthcare being a team sport, which I agree with you 100%. I, I kind of footnoted the remark, you know, because it's not just doctors. It's not like you just have a star system. You have a great doctor, a great orthopedic surgeon. You need good physical therapists, nurses. You need good social workers, the whole thing. But I think uh, an idea that never really fully developed are what I would call centers of excellence or areas that really, like if you had a population that had, for example, a lot of diabetics or whatever too, that there was some way that, again, through our technology, you know, we've got all these great tech companies that these patients are identified by, let's say, the medications they're taking and saying, you know what, let's make sure they're seen at this center or they're getting this kind of, you know, attention to their diet. Is anything like that in the works? I think the answer is there's a ton of stuff that is one-off by people who want to use innovative methods and technologies to break into healthcare. But I will say that that as someone who is responsible for the healthcare delivery at a $1.8 billion public hospital, that's our annual budget. That's not our problem. What's not your problem? Lack of technology and specialization is not our problem. Our problem is we don't do the basics well. Okay. We don't have access to care for people. Right. We don't have standardization such that you do end up getting someone who has a simple staff abscess admitted to the hospital for three days with $55,000 of bills, almost all of which was unneeded. We don't do the basics well in this country. Well, I want to, I'm sorry, I'm going to stop you because I want to know what that means. And I'll, I'll tell you why, because again, what I've seen evolve over the last decade, I'm slightly old enough to remember like when you had your own family physician, your pediatrician, that kind of thing. Someone who really, you know, whatever it was worth, really knew your family, took care of you. That's what I love what I do. Actually, I, I take care of children and adults in my medical practice in immunology and allergy. What's really popped up, and I'm sure in California too, is a quote, all these urgent care centers, which I... I'm not really thrilled about because I feel like they don't really know the patients. They do a lot of stopgap. They don't really do what a hospital can do. I, I find it, you know, I always, I, mean, I make people laugh when I tell them urgent care centers, not to deny, you know, not to denigrate them too much, but they remind me of that commercial where you see these bank robbers break into a bank and there's a guy dressed in a uniform and everybody's looking at him like to do something. And he goes, I'm just a security monitor. I'm just here to let you know there's a problem, right? But with so many young adults that I see in New York who don't have a primary doctor, the urgent care center is the only place because they want out of convenience. They're going to go to if they have COVID, strep, whatever. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them are just really relieved when I'm taking care of them for other things that like they're still using me in a way, in a sense, for primary care. So how do we change that whole mindset? I mean, because, again, that's financial, right? I mean, even hospitals have got into that game. They realize, you know what, for those overflow of patients after hours, we don't want our ER overflowing with minor things. I mean, how do we put this all together? We have the fourth busiest emergency department of the United States at LA County General mm -hmm. Hospital. And a huge number of those people come to us because they have no primary care. That is a failure of our healthcare system. That's exactly what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. I don't need a fancy phone app and a fancy technology. I need basic healthcare access to get the basics of healthcare delivery done. And I will point out that means. In the 21st century, that means getting people a home, getting people addiction medicine services, getting people mental health support. It is the social determinants of health where we catastrophically fail in this country because we have never put them into our healthcare system. And that drives much more of our healthcare outcomes. I will say, for example, in the county health system in LA County, we have four hospitals and 26 clinics. 
And people have said at my hospital, we want to become a comprehensive stroke center, which would be tens of millions of dollars of investment. And when I talk to the central system, we're a primary stroke center. There's a lot of interest in the technology advantages of a comprehensive stroke center. We could do better patient care for stroke patients. The answer I get back is, stop and think about this for a minute. The answer I get back is, why should we invest $20 million in a comprehensive stroke center to take care of people with strokes when we could put that money into primary care to keep people from having strokes in the first place? We have, have to make some tough choices in this country. Yeah, but we you know, cannot be throwing money. Yes, at- I understand. As you know, too, what happens in life, and it's kind of, it's kind of like what healthcare is. And I, I always tell people too, and you know, friends of mine that meet me or whatever too. You know, when we're trained as a doctor, it's almost a little bit like military. We're trained to think about the problems. I'm not saying it's not really important to prevent the problems. The same way that it's important to prevent a war, but wars break out and they happen. And strokes happen, heart attacks happen. I think even under the best circumstances, because you know, yeah, people again. I mean, it's a huge process to educate everybody, keep your cholesterol low, and all that. And that's all super important. But at the end of the day, bad things unfortunately happen, and they land on your door and in my office. And people expect us to do something. But it's not. So here's the thing: I, you have to make prioritized choices, right? And so we do take care of stroke patients. We are a primary stroke center, and we do it very well. The question is, what is the incremental value advantage to society to us investing 20 million into becoming another comprehensive stroke center when we already have people who have no access? And would we be better investing that money in basic access to treat their diabetes and their blood pressure, get them into a bariatrics program to help them lose weight? put them on tobacco treatment to get them off the cigarettes, et cetera. So if you were in charge, let's say you had a government position, not just your public hospital position, and they said, Dr. Spellberg, we're going to give you this area of Los Angeles County or whatever. Here's X amount, millions of funds. As an experiment, we want to see what would you do? Say you would give them all this blanket, single care, uh, single payer insurance coverage. You would set up these clinics that have medical homes. Is that, is that what you'd like to do? I mean, if you if you were able to give like a model of what you think would work, because that's of course what happens in the United States too. They We like to experiment and see playoff systems and see what's working. So in LA, we actually have some of what you're talking about. We actually have been fairly forward. So we have a ton of Medicaid, but because of the ACA expansion, right. you know, Pre-ACA, this hospital had 50% of its population uninsured. That number now is 5%. Oh, wow. Almost everybody has Medicaid, and they almost all get assigned to medical homes. But it's not single-payer. And so what happens is people not assigned to us come to us. We don't know what happened to them at the other facility. We do stuff. They go back. They don't know what we did. They bounce all around. They fill our beds. Our patients end up there. It's chaos. Yeah. Single payer, unequipped. This is not debatable. We could debate the philosophy and people's preferences mm-hmm. for the philosophies. Factually and objectively, single payer is more efficient and less expensive than any other paid healthcare system in the world. Well, yeah, you bring up something that I was going to talk about with technology because there's two really key points I wanted to get to. And one, which fortunately I don't do in my own office and purposely is EMR. A lot of my colleagues I've talked to, EMR is a failure. 
I mean, they just, doctors sit there typing away on a computer. Even that information, if you're with one healthcare system, it doesn't communicate to the other healthcare system. So it just seems like it's been an enormous amount of work. And I always tease people too, when I get a report from uh, another doctor that has an EMR system, I say it's like taking out the dictionary and just like flipping it through. I mean, my personal three paragraph note would tell a doctor more about reading what I was doing with that patient than this 12 page, which looks like paste and cut thing out of the dictionary. So I agree with you there. I think the single payer would take care of that. But what else about telehealth? I found it to be fascinating in my practice because again, obviously the ideal situation is to be in person with a patient, but for so many reasons, that's not even possible in a lot of cases. And I find the experience pretty helpful to the patient. So do you see it as a game changer in any way? Or oh no? yeah. Look, I mean, we were talking before we went on the air about my Tesla. Right. <laughs> I bought my Tesla in my pajamas while lying in bed with the TV on. Oh, wow. <laughs> I never left my house. Yeah. I purchased the car online. They drove the car to my house. It didn't drive itself? I, that'll be the next evolution, right? No, but medicine is the last, like, we got Amazon. Nobody goes to, you know, right. department right. cars to do Yes. What we've learned, if there has been one good thing from this awful experience of COVID, which all of us want to be over and I can't wait, okay? Yeah. If there's one good thing that's come out of it is we realized, why are we making all these people come to campus and find parking? Our patients take three buses and oh, miss all God. day at work. Right. Well, they could just pop on their phone for a half an hour and right. chat. That's right. Now, you're right. There are things, procedures, blood draws. There's things you got to come for. Right, right. But not a lot of other things could be cut out. I mean, I find the when you talk about access again, with COVID and it opened up the restrictions, I have people from all over the New York State, tri-state area and I understand this too. Like sometimes also before even traveling to see me, they like to do a consultation to see if the services that I'm doing are going to be worth it for them to come in. Yeah. And I think the only crazy barrier, unfortunately, is all this whole BS about interstate things. It's all medical society stuff. Because you know what? If you're in the United States of America and you pay taxes to the IRS, whatever, too, you should be able to consult with any doctor in the country to get their hopefully informed opinion. Because I always tell patients, I mean, that's what this podcast is all about. You know, today we're talking about the healthcare system. Typically I'm talking about individual medical issues and maybe one day we'll talk about infectious disease because I love that area too. But it's the whole thing, Give the, empower them to know what can I do and who should I see to get the quickest help that I can get. And as you know, too, this could be extremely cost-effective because what are you, you know, what uh, overhead do you have if you're working out of your computer, you know, in a little office or at home? Those are the kinds of things that I think single payer enables, right? Mm -hmm. There's no more individual state licensing. It's a single payer, right? Everything starts to become simplified. Administrative costs go way down. Yeah. We pay at least 200% more for administrative costs in the United States than the next most expensive administrative costs in single-payer countries. I do think we, you know, we should look to me the model. What I greatly admire the VA. The VA system is a to me. Yeah, people love it. I mean, they get all their medications covered, you know. Awesome. Unfortunately, you have to go to war though. You have to be in the military <laughs> to get it. Fair enough. <laughs> Little but, problem. <laughs> so people bash what they call socialized medicine. It's essentially, the VA is the equivalent in this country, the UK. Yeah. Right. That will never be acceptable to the American people. 
expanding the VA so that the government employs the doctors and the nurses and owns the hospitals will never be acceptable. That is not the same as single payer. Yeah. In single payer countries, the doctors are private. They employ themselves, right? Yeah. You replace the insurance. Yeah. Now, that is what's fascinating to me about Australia and New Zealand, because there they absolutely have single payer. They have a central government insurance payer that covers everybody who legally resides in those countries. But they also have a thriving private insurance market. No, a lot of the hybrids. You're right. There's no question because yeah. you know, there are people. And you know, just to go to your other point too, this is fascinating. I was thinking about this because I did medical training in Israel. And you now, if you really think about it, also there, everybody has to go into the army like for two years, men and women. And if you start with the young people, so just thinking about this too, if you started with the young people with quote some of the VA system. And they got indoctrinated into it and they knew they could get their health care, you know, and they, they knew the place they would get all their medications, which is a big deal for so many people, that it would be more accepting. And then the older people have Medicare and the ones in the middle, you'd see that chunk of people would be sandwiched basically until it dissolved away because you have to start with the new generation. As you know, it's like what they call the Lindy effect. It's very hard to change old ways. Like, you know, my field of allergy, I do sublingual drops. And I had so many patients over the years who came to me and go, how come nobody else is doing this? That was like the usual refrain. And I'm like, old methods of medicine die a very long, slow death, right? And it's the same thing with this. This needs to be put to rest. But I think by getting the up and coming generation who, again, their jobs, I mean, they can't have their health insurance tied to their jobs. Their jobs change every year for a lot of Mm -hmm. these people or they're independent startup entrepreneurs or whatever it is. The amount of government positions are dwindling. And those who are, you know, it's interesting. My sister was a judge. I have other patients, you know, who are teachers or federal employees. And I used to like, oh, God, I wish I could get their insurance, you know, just to have that security, right? And, and I think that's what we all want. I'm going to turn the last, just the last two questions on this, though, because, again, it has to do with the financial burden in some ways. Like, for example, I teach at the medical school in New York. I know you teach at USC. I mean, typically in private medical schools, it's about $75,000 a year. For a student, that's a big burden for them mm-hmm. to carry. Is there mm-hmm. any way? I mean, I know NYU here in New York was fortunate to the gravitas of uh, Ken Langone. It's free, which is would be awesome the way it should be because you'll you know, and then hopefully people give some service back. But is there any way of diminishing this burden to the future? Yeah, I mean that is a whole separate marketplace, right? I mean that's that's a business. Why is it so expensive? I don't. Hospitals generate. Let's say a lot of these medical schools are affiliated with a hospital that's generating money. Like myself, I teach. I don't really usually get paid. It's all adjunct, and there there are a couple of full time professors. Why is it so expensive? Here's the bottom line. Yeah, is that a rip off? <laughs> it is. In the United States, I'll go back a step. You often hear people say, I feel like I'm falling further and further behind every year. I'm further into debt, all this. Right. But if you look at the Department of Labor statistics, wages are actually going up at 3% per year and inflation is 2% per year. So people are actually getting raises above inflation. Why do they feel like they're falling further and further behind every year? The answer is the same to that question as it is to the question about medical students, because healthcare costs in this country are going up at 5% per year. So every additional dollar people make in a pay raise next year is going to get sucked into their even higher healthcare costs. Why is it that med students' fees are going up so drastically? Doctor salaries are going up. Nurses' salaries are going up. The really? cost of MRIs are going up. 5% per year healthcare costs going up is not sustainable. 
And yes, hospitals are bringing in revenue, but their costs are going up 5% per year too. So everything that is related to it gets sucked into this inflationary rise. This is completely not sustainable. And that is a result of our fragmented, chaotic healthcare system. And you think also, this goes to my last question, because it's a big one. You can't turn on a, a major TV station, whether you're a Fox or CNN person, where every other ad is for these new biologic medications. And they are thousands of dollars. I mean, of course, now Medicare, just or whatever, the FDA approved the Alzheimer's drug, which is $56,000 a treatment. Now, I know in Europe, they are not paying these kind of fees. I mean, that's why they run to the United States. So again, is that the government has to step in to, uh, quote, control in? The government under current law cannot step in. Right. Medicare is prohibited from negotiating costs of drugs. Wow, they got that one in on the... Uh... <laughs> I mean, it's like... Yeah, that was, well, that their lobby is... I, well, I said all along, you know, when all the, the changes, whether it was Obamacare or the Clintons years before, I said, you know, the poor doctors and the, maybe in the hospitals, they're like the bystanders. There was once a great New Yorker cartoon and it showed a picture of an operating room. And, you know, you see everybody gowned up, but they had their name tags. And the, right in front of the operation was the insurance guy. And toward the back was the doctor, you know, like overlooking a little bit. You know, Big Pharma is super powerful. And... People are frustrated because, again, with all the breakthroughs and the great medications, which do, no question, make a huge impact. And again, with COVID, this is going to be huge. But we have to figure out a way to fairly pay for all this and for them to be within reason, too, because they have lifelong customers. <laughs> you know, it's uh... what your listeners need to understand is that every year they're getting ripped off by our healthcare system. Mm. We are paying astronomical amounts of taxes. Your small business is getting ripped off by our healthcare system. The cost of employee benefits is astronomical. Every year in the United States, businesses pay nearly four times more in healthcare costs for their employees than they pay in corporate taxes. Our healthcare system, Warren Buffett said it, our healthcare system is the tapeworm of the American economy. Okay, so for our listeners and all of us, myself included, we should hopefully in this next election, whether it's our local elections in our state or obviously at the federal level, that we should want to know what the candidates stand for in healthcare. It should be number one, two, and three about are they going to provide us with affordable healthcare, potentially a single payer system to like revolutionize this. Because I, again, what's always so scary, this is not curing cancer. This is just moving around numbers and adjusting a system that any business would have to do to survive. You know, there are countries in the world that operate very effective multi-payer systems that work very differently than ours. I will take anything that doesn't set fire to a trillion dollars of waste mm. per year in taxpayer burden. So what we should demand is a rational, bipartisan healthcare solution that is, we want a real healthcare system in this country. And if that means compromising on the details, do it. But get us a freaking cost-effective healthcare system in this country. Well, I feel a little better after this conversation because I feel like there are people that are care and that are going to be able to do something. You know, I talk about this a lot with my patients when we're in between dealing with their medical issues because I have all along thought this is so important, so problematic, and so heartbreaking in so many ways. 
Because again, when you hear about people say, I can't afford this healthcare or I can't afford this medication in your book, again, Broken, Bankrupt and Dying, which I recommend to anyone listening is a great book that again, not only identifies the problems because we can all pick out the problems and complain, but you point to a solution. So Dr. Spellberg, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.